when I was a kid, um, there were two days that like mattered um, in my mind. There were two days that I loved as a child more than any, probably any other day of the year. Okay. Um, I loved two days. I loved my birthday. Right. And a lot of us in here, you guys, uh, how many of you still love your birthday? Does anyone do like the birth week thing? You're like, this is my birth month. It's my birth month. My birth month is coming up, church. And so I'm just going to say, I'm expecting, just kidding. Um, as a kid, though, we love our birthday. We love our birthday. Um, because why? Why do we love our birthday? Because it's a day that's all about me. It's all about us, right? And so as a kid, especially, we love our birthday. Um, the other day, if you're, if you're thinking about that motivation, what would be the other day that a kid loves? Christmas, right? Christmas. Uh, Birthday and Christmas. For me, um, especially elementary age, um, my parents didn't do an allowance or anything like that. It was like, these are the chores and your allowance as you live here. And so that was the end of it. And so that was the arrangement and it it worked, I guess. And so that's what we did. Um, But Christmas and my birthday, uh, my parents would buy gifts and grandparents and aunts and uncles and friends, right? They would send money or the gifts or whatever. And so at a certain age, up until a certain age, if I wanted to buy anything with my own money, that money was coming from two places, birthday and Christmas. Anywhere in between, I had to figure out how to make it last all the way around. And my birthday is end of summer, beginning of the fall. And so I had from birthday to Christmas wasn't too bad, but from Christmas all the way back around, I really had to figure out how to pace that spending because that was it. And as a kid, I loved those days. Now today, um, I still love Christmas, but I love Christmas for different reasons. I love Christmas because I have four little kids, and I love watching their faces uh, as they open gifts. Um, I enjoyed Father's Day this morning. My, uh, my kids, uh, my daughters, uh, my boys didn't do anything for me. Can you believe that? They didn't give me anything. But the girls, um, they made these little cards, and they were, I mean, they're adorable. Just Lucy is figuring out how to spell, and so she wrote out a card, and she was, thank you for this thing or whatever that happened, and she remembered uh, how I had helped her in a situation. So she wrote her little note, and the spelling is terrible, but it's perfect, right? Um, and so I love Father's Day, not because I get those things, because I get to watch the joy on my kids' face as they give those things, but I love their birthdays. Um, and we try, to, we try to make a big deal of birthdays at our house, uh, but it's not for me. My birthday can come and go and no one cares, right? Um, Cindy, you'll do something nice. The kids celebrate it, right? It's like, okay, thank you very much. But the kids' birthdays, I love those because I love the joy on their face when you give them a gift. I love the joy and the expression and the, the heartfelt sincerity, the excitement. What changed? What changed? For being a kid, uh, we are, um, maybe we would say, immature. We desire these things to be about us. As a parent, we would say, oh, I would absolutely 10 out of 10 rather give something to my child than get something from them, right? I would much rather, listen, for my kids, handmade gifts for me, perfect. I love, I, I love those. If they got a handmade gift for me, they'd be like, dad, what is this? <laughs> But what changed? Well, in my situation, fatherhood changed, right? Parents would change these things. But in reality, really what it is beneath the surface there, maturity, maturity changed the way that we view these holidays. 
And let me, I'm going to phrase it this way for our conversations today, for our time in the Word today. Mature people desire better for others than for themselves. Mature people desire better for others than for themselves. If you want to know if you have grown into maturity, spiritually speaking, then you desire good for others more than you do for yourselves. If you come to church and it's all about how can I be served? How can I be? Now, listen, the gospel gives us more than we could ever give in return. Okay, so we're already settled up there. But mature people come in and they say, hey, how can I be a part of? How can I give? How can I help meet the needs of others beyond how can others come and meet my needs? There's a line and there's a distinction that takes place when biblical maturity is reached or when we are pursuing biblical maturity that says, I would rather good for someone else than even good for myself. And as we come to 2 Corinthians chapter number 9, that's really what we're encountering. Now, this Corinthian church is an interesting church. Um, this Corinthian church, we looked at um, them in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, or beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter number 1, I'm sorry, um, back in the beginning of this series. And this Corinthian church is kind of known as being a relatively immature church. This is a church that, as we look into these letters that were written to them, we see some of these warts and flaws and some of these failings, and we see some of this immaturity. Um, but what we find here is Paul is actually talking about an offering that is going to go out for the believers in Jerusalem and Judea. At this time, Jerusalem and Judea are under uh, immense, Christians in these areas are under immense persecution from the Jews and from the Romans that have been stirred up. And so there are needs. They're having difficulties being able to provide for families. They're, uh, in a lot of ways, they're fleeing. They're kind of refugees within their own places. Um, this is a culture that's very heavily religious. And so your religion matters. When you're no longer part of the confessing synagogue, if you're no longer doing the things that the Jews did, then you're an outcast from this culture now. And so these other churches in more Gentile areas are collecting an offering to go down to those believers in Jerusalem and to help meet their needs and to care for them. And so that's where we enter chapter number nine. And so chapter number eight is all about the giving of the Macedonian churches. And then even in verse number eight of chapter number eight, we see a verse that kind of sets the tone. He says this, Paul writes, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And so even as this is going on, he's not giving this as a command, but here's what he's saying. He's saying, you Corinthian believers, I'm challenging you to put your money where your mouth is. I'm challenging you to put your resources where you say what you say you believe. I'm challenging you to do something with those things. And that's the context that he's jumping in. And this is kind of in contrast to maybe James chapter number two, where James gives this analogy of someone. Um, could you imagine, let's, we'll put it in our modern day terms. Could you imagine if your friend or a family member came to your needs, or maybe my, maybe one of your children came to you and they said, Hey mom, I am hungry. I'm starving. I haven't eaten all day. As a mom, if you said, go your way, this is the, the verse in James. He says, go your way, be warmed and filled. Basically it's the, uh, okay, I'll pray for you even though you have resources to meet these needs. And if you had food in your cupboard and your children were constantly hungry and they never ate, and you said, well, you know, I, I, hope them, I hope the best for them, but you never gave them food, you never gave them resources, we would say, well, that's not a very good parent, right? 
if you never actually provided for them or took care of them. And so as we come into chapter 9, this is the tone that Paul is establishing. And let's look at what he says in verse number 1 of chapter 9. To the Corinthian church, he writes, Now it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, that's the region that Corinth is located in, has been ready since last year. Your zeal has stirred up most of them, but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come to me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing uh, to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. And so what's happening now is there is a need that's taking place and the Corinthian believers have opportunity to meet this need. And that's what generosity is. Generosity is the biblical response to opportunity and need. Generosity is the biblical response to opportunity and need. And so these Corinthian believers had the ability to meet needs of the Jewish believers down in Jerusalem and Judea. And they saw the need among those believers in this region. And so Paul is writing saying, hey, we talked about this gift a while back. And even notice what he says in these verses, because I think this is important as we go through. This is not a condemning chapter at all. Rather, this is a hope-filled chapter. And he speaks to the known history of generosity among the Corinthians. Now, let me, let me plug something in here. The Corinthians, when Paul was ministering to them, this was one of the only areas that that church did not financially help meet Paul's needs. So if you're familiar with maybe the term tent maker or tent making, this comes from the time that Paul was spending in Corinth where he worked as a tent maker. And so he was maybe in today's term what we would call bivocational. Now here's the thing. That church had the ability to be generous. That church, we don't know of any reason that that church was not able to give or be generous, but they chose not to be at that time. At the time, at the beginning, they were not a generous church. But then when he leaves and when he goes to Macedonia, when he goes to the Philippian church and some of these other churches in that region, what does he say about the Corinthian church to the Macedonian church? Watch this, verse number two of chapter nine. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia. So when Paul gets to Macedonia, what does he tell the Philippian church and the Thessalonican church and all these other churches in this region about the Corinthians? Does he say, man, those guys, they are the worst. They are not generous. They don't give. They don't try to meet needs. They're so immature. They're constantly fighting with each other. Is that what he tells the Philippian church about the Corinthian church? No. He speaks good of the Philippian, of the Corinthian church to these other churches. He said, I went there and I boast, I bragged about how far you had come in your generosity. And as I speak to our church here today, I can kind of say something similar, not that we're immature and fighting and things like that, uh, but that we have a generous church. We have a generous church. You say, Nate, are you preaching this message because bills aren't paid? And because, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm preaching it because it's the Bible. I'm preaching it because it's the word of God. 
We have a generous church. And so this is not a condemning message by any means, but this is a message that I feel as your pastor that I would be out of place to not address from the word of God. And so as we look at this, what I want to look at today is I want to look at three benefits of generosity, three benefits of generosity. And Paul lays them out for us here in this text. And I think you're going to be a little bit surprised by the way that he expounds these things. If you're not familiar with this passage, look at verse number six and let's continue through. The point is this, don't you love it when someone gets to the point? Sorry, guys. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap also bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And so what does he do? Immediately he goes in and he gives this analogy of the sowing of seed. And he says, just like a farmer goes out and would sow out, a field. He says, if we sow sparingly, we reap sparingly, right? If you go out, if you were a farmer and you went out to your field and you just planted a little bit of crop, you would not expect this big bountiful harvest, would you? You would say, you know what? I got what I deserved. I got what I put out. But then if you go and if you invest as much as you can into the land, and then you look at that harvest, you expect a generous harvest, Right? And you would be disappointed if you did not get that which you sowed. And so he begins by saying, giving this analogy of sowing and reaping. But I want to be very careful about how we talk about this. Because Paul does not sit here saying that we give money so that God will give us money. That's not what's taking place here. As we're going to find out, Paul instead is speaking of those who would give to the Lord for the purpose of multiplying the gospel. And so he's using this generosity and this financial giving as an example of seed that is sown into the harvest. Let's keep reading here. Verse number eight. He says this, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work. And so he says, he says, Hey, listen, I would cheat you if I weren't addressing this with you because I want you to abound to every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And so he even looks to the Lord as a model for, as a model for our giving. Oh, but watch this in verse number eight, because here's what I want to hone in on for just a moment. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at, and at all times, you may abound in every good work the first space, the first benefit I want to look at is this. Generosity is for your good. Generosity is for your good. You say, Nate, you just said that just because I give doesn't mean that God is going to lump money back into me. Well, right. I'm standing by that. Okay. But what I mean by this is for your good. What does he say? He says, having all sufficiency, having all sufficiency. Here's what he says. As he says, God will provide and God will take care of. You have everything that is 
sufficient. But what does sufficiency even look like? What is Paul's philosophy on sufficiency? Well, if you want to see that, Philippians chapter 4 is a great place to look. Philippians chapter 4, um, if you remember verse number 13, if you ever um, watch like Golden State Warriors play, you see um, Steph Curry, he's got a Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ, right? Um, but what's the context of Philippians chapter 4, verse number 13? Watch what's happening here. He says, um, look at verse number 11 of Philippians chapter number 4. You can listen with me. He says this, actually in verse number 10, let's watch. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And so this is a little bit different than the Corinthian church, right? This is a church that sees the need that Paul has. They are concerned, but they don't have an opportunity to be able to be generous. This Philippian church is lacking in resources in the same way that the Corinthians have. And so they give what they can, but they're lacking in resources to be able to meet these needs fully. Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned that in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so how, what is the strength that God gives to Paul? The strength that God gives to Paul is the strength of sufficiency. When he looks around, regardless of his needs, he understands and he knows that God is sufficient. And so even when, even when he is just scraping by because there's no financial ability, there's no resources, he says, you know what? I'm content. I am satisfied. I have enough. And then when the seasons come where the blessings come in and there's an unexpected gift or there's something that, oh, wow, this generosity is above what I've, he said, I am content. He doesn't get too high when things are good. He doesn't get too low when things are bad, but he's figured out the secret to happiness and contentment. And even in the realm of godliness is satisfaction, knowing that Jesus is enough. He says, through Christ, I have all things. Through Christ, I'm not lacking. Through Christ, I am able to be sufficient. But this is where our generosity comes in, is our generosity is a demonstration of that contentment. Our generosity is saying, God, you actually are enough. You see, we're all at different stages of life. We're all in different financial situations. We all have different levels of resources, whether it be time and energy, whether it be finances. But the fact is, is that in the middle of all of this, Jesus says, I am enough. I am sufficient. I am able to meet these needs. I'm able to make you content and help you to be content. Because if you have me, you have everything. But here's the thing is, if we don't have Christ, but you have the world, what does it mean for someone to gain the whole world, but lose his own soul? The words of Jesus. And so as we look at generosity, generosity is for your good. I don't mean your financial multiplication. I mean, if you struggle with contentment, if you struggle with contentment, giving is a way that we acknowledge and we take steps of faith towards contentment. Because giving says, although God, you have given to me, and because you have given to me, I am free to give to others. That's what he means right here. Look at this little interim verse in the book of 2 Corinthians. Flip back over there with me. Verse number nine. If you have a Bible that's uh, formatted where it's a paragraph kind of text, you can see this jumps out as you as a quotation. He's actually quoting from the Psalms. He's saying this, he being the Lord has distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So what is the gift that God has given to the poor? He's given his righteousness. 
And he says what? He says it endures forever. You can't tap that resource out. It's not finite. It's not one that you can say, God, well, I was so far away from you. You surely could not have paid for or purchased my sin and my guilt. You could not have given me your righteousness because my shame and my lowliness was so far. He says, no, 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 no. His righteousness endures forever. It's not limited. It's not uh, shortened. It's not unable to save. And so what we find is that generosity is a response to God's giving to us. And it's for your good. It's for your good. You still with me? We still good? We still friends? (laughs) Look at verse number 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And so not only, watch this, not only is generosity for your good, but generosity is for the good of others. Generosity is for the good of others. And so watch what he's doing here. This is really, really interesting to me. What he's saying is he continues this, uh, he continues with this metaphor. He who supplies seed to the sowers, this is the Lord, and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So what is the harvest that we receive as we sow the seed? What is the harvest that we receive? He will increase the harvest of your righteousness. And he also does say that he will multiply that seed. So as we give, as we give, and as God deems it possible to give back to us, within that state of contentment, if God does multiply that, and there are those that are within the the body of Christ at large, that God has given enormous resources that are very generous with the resources that they have. And I believe that there are people that God has given those resources to, and God multiplies that for the purpose of what? The mission. For the purpose of the mission. Because he says this, the fruit that we receive is not just this financial fruit in return. He doesn't say give so you can get more. This isn't an investment strategy for your personal bank account. This is a spiritual investment strategy. Because as he says, as you give, he is going to multiply your seed for sowing. He's going to give you opportunities to give more. And so you might say right now, I want to give, but I can only give a little. That's, that's where we start. Everyone starts somewhere. Everyone is somewhere. But he says, as you give some, he says, God is capable. If God so chooses, he can multiply that ability for you to give. And then what what does he say, though? It's the increase of the harvest of your righteousness. And so as we give, it's not an increase for my bank account. It's an increase for the work of God to go forward, for the work of God to be able to multiply itself. And so this is the reason our, your generosity is for your good, but generosity is also for the good of others. Generosity is for the good of others. And could you imagine um, using this illustration of the seed for the sowing? You see, um, An increased seed means an increased harvest, right? You reap what you sow, but then you reap more than you sow, but you reap in proportion to your sowing. 
So let's go back to being a farmer, all right? Um, if you're farming, and let's say that you give, um, let's say that you plant a bushel of seed within a certain plot of land, and it returns just this magnificent harvest. The next year, you say, you know what? It returns so much, I'm only going to plant half a bushel. Is that what we would do as a farmer? Or maybe if we were investing in our finances and we said, wow, this fund, this account did so well, I'm only going to put half of that in there this time. No, we would say, I'm going to get as much as I can out of this. This ground is fertile. This ground is giving back. It is producing fruit. And so I am going to give generously to the sowing of this seed. And that's what he's talking about here, the multiplication of this. And the more harvest this is, there is, means more seed. When the harvest comes back, there is an opportunity to give even more in that next planting season, that next spring. You see, and as we give generously, God helps that seed to fall onto the ground that he desires it to fall onto, right? God is, we are the sowers. But even if you look at the parable of the sower in the book of Matthew, Jesus speaks of the one that would go out of the sower that's sowing seed. And some falls on good ground, some falls on stony ground, some falls on thorny ground, it's choked out. But as that seed plants itself into the good ground, as that seed takes root and as it matures, it produces more fruit. You see, as the seed bears fruit, it produces, once again, it also produces generosity. You see, as we, as believers, are generous with our giving, as the word of God goes out from this place, as the word of God goes into our communities and into our state and into our nation and around the world through our giving, people come to know Christ. People come to be disciples of his. And then what happens? What happens as those resources are stewarded well? Others come to know Christ and they join in on the cause. They understand the mission because now Christ has done a work for them. They want to be a part of that same giving. And so we see that it's cyclical. It doesn't just stop with us. But at the end of the day, what is the purpose and the function of our generosity? Look at verse number 13. Let's look at, let's look at verse number 12 first. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints. Okay. So we said it's for the good of others, but it's not only for the good of others. It is also an overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And so we know that generosity is for the glory of God. Generosity is for the glory of God. You see, through your contentment, God gets the glory. Because God is enough, God gets the glory. And then through your generosity, now those who have received on the receiving end of our generosity, it's glory to God. They praise God for these things. We give it out of the heart of thanksgiving, saying, God, you have given to me, you are sufficient for me. And God, I desire your glory. Above all else, it's not just because there's a need, but it's God's going to get glory through meeting this need. 
His name is going to be known from eating this need. It's going to be seen that he provided for me and he provided for those. And so we give first and foremost. This is really the reason that we give. We give so that God can get the glory. We give so that his name can be made high. Not so anyone can know that we are the giver. Not so anyone can know that we are the one who is being generous. But that they can understand that God is capable of meeting their needs. Because just like there was a time in your life where there was a need that God met miraculously and you praise him for it. You look to him and you say, God, I know you're sufficient because you've been sufficient for me. Hey, you could be the, you could be the conduit for that same thing in someone else's life. And in your generosity, they don't look just at you and they don't look at me and say, oh, wow, how generous that individual is. But our desire ought to be that they look to God and they say, Lord, you're generous. Lord, you're generous. God, you moved in your people to meet this need. What a wonderful thing that is. And look at verse number 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. You see, we can't even verbalize the gift of Jesus Christ, his son. It's inexpressible. You can't put a dollar amount on that. You can't pin it to some sort of metric. You can't say, well, because God gave this, then I ought to give. There's no limit to it. He emptied the storehouses of heaven. He he gave us his son, Jesus Christ, to pay a debt that we could never pay. He gave to us an inexpressible gift. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And so church, my question for you this morning is, what does it mean for you to live generously. What does it mean for you to live generously? You see, this is the beautiful thing about generosity is generosity looks different for you and it looks different for me. As the Holy Spirit moves in your heart, what does Paul say? He says, not uh, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Each one must give as he decided in his heart, verse number seven. So what does it mean for you to live generously? Because for you to live generously looks different for them. For me to live generously looks different than the person next to you to live generously. But it's a question worth considering. You see, we're all grateful that we serve a generous God. We're all grateful that we have a God who gave to us beyond comprehension, beyond compare. So church today, as we consider this question of generosity, what does it mean for you to live generously? What's God doing in your heart? Does that mean that, hey, there are many in here. There are many in here. I understand you've lived a life of generosity. That's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful testimony. Maybe for some in here, you say, you know what? I I haven't lived that way. I need to begin taking steps towards that. Maybe for some who have lived generously, you say, you know what? I I could live more generously because as we sow more seed, we reap a greater harvest, right? That's what Paul says, the word of God. And so church, what does it mean? for you as an individual to live generously.